So this is a book that I've wanted to preach on for a, a very long time, actually. It's, it's probably my favorite book in the Bible. I don't know if pastors are supposed to say that, but it is. I have a favorite, and it is the book of Acts. Uh, and for a, quite a while, I have been thinking that when we get into the new building, this is the, this is the book I want to preach on. Um, you know, it's, it's a book of, of growth and, and new beginnings and triumph. I thought this was going to be great. And then, you know, the last few months, maybe a few months ago, it looked like we were going to be getting into our building at the same time that COVID was ending forever. So this is perfect. You know, it's just going to be a season of sunshine and lollipops. I, I just, I dabble with idealism just a little bit. I don't know if you can tell. And then, of course, COVID didn't end, and the world in some ways is a more divided and scary place than maybe it ever has been for a lot of us. Uh, and so for a little bit, I thought maybe, maybe I should not preach on Acts until things have kind of settled down, until the world is a perfect place. Then I can preach on Acts. And, uh, and then I, I realized, Craig, you're a dummy, which is something I realize often, uh, but also that, that what we see in the book of Acts happened in the context of social and political turmoil. It happened with intense pressure from within to divide and pressure from outside in the form of persecution and, and opposition. So, so, you know, maybe, maybe we don't need to wait until the world is perfect. Maybe God is able to work through situations like this. You know, sometimes I think about COVID as being this like barrier that, that simply uh, inhibits the gospel. The gospel can't go, like COVID kind of says you can go this far and no further. And God's like, okay, I guess I got to respect that. That's how I sometimes think in my fallen mind. And some of us think this way in life in general, that we think, well, I'll get everything in order. I'll get everything settled. And then maybe it's Jesus time, which to be honest with you is scubalon. That's an inside joke from two weeks ago if you missed it. School, it's garbage. It's just simply not the way it is. If God did it before, then he can do it again. See, the, the book of Acts, is, uh, it's, it's like our origin story. You know what I mean by an origin story? If you've watched superhero movies, then you know, every superhero has an origin story. It's how it all began. My favorite superhero is it, not very exciting, but it's Superman. And his origin story, of course, is he's the last son of Krypton. His Kryptonian parents send him to Earth in a spaceship, crash lands in a cornfield in Kansas where Jonathan and Martha Kent discover him. He grows up in Smallville, kind of hidden from the public eye where his superhero abilities develop. And, and if you know the Superman mythology, you know that that theme of hiddenness kind of runs throughout that whole story. It's, it's, how, it, it's how it began. It's where he's from. The book of Acts is our origin story as a church, as the church. It's, it's who we are. It's where we came from. It's our foundation. And the last couple of weeks, we've talked about how important it is to keep our eyes on the vision to know where we're going. But it's also important to remember where we've come from. Because sometimes a, a person or a group, they start off with a bang and, and then they get off track. Right? They, they kind of take some detours. And you got to remember this. This is who we are. This is where we're from. And, and I'll, I'll tell you that my hope actually is that as we go through this book of Acts, that, that it's not just a bunch of stories that we're going to become familiar with, but my prayer actually is that we would see these events coming to life in our day and age, in our midst. And, and maybe, 
Maybe God will choose not to do that, and maybe we as a church won't be open to that, but you might as well know that's what I'm going to be praying for. And I want to start by praying for that. So Lord, I thank you so much for the, the testimony of the early church, for how you poured out your spirit as we were just singing and, and asking for. You poured out your spirit and you caused the good news of Jesus to explode, Lord, from this small little band of disciples. You did it in the midst of a world with so much brokenness and, 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 and so many pressures that would destroy the church before it even got started, and yet your Holy Spirit was seeing them through all of this. And so, Lord, we pray that in this, in this season, as, as we enter into this testimony, that you would do the same kinds of things that we see in, in, in the Bible, that you would do it among us. Lord, that we would be completely open to whatever you would want to do in our church and through our church. That we would be submitted and surrendered to you, God. And that, that we would see you do, do what you have done before. In Jesus' name, amen. And I would encourage you to continue praying for that, for, for our church. Here's, here's how the book begins. This is how our origin story begins. Acts 1, verses 1 to 2. If you've got your Bible, open it up there. Acts 1, verses 1 to 2. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. After giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. Now, a few points of introduction here. First, the author of this book is a guy named Luke, a follower of Jesus, a part of Paul, Apostle Paul's mission team, as we see later on in the book. Luke was perhaps a Gentile, actually. From what uh, Paul says in Colossians 4, it may be that Luke is the only non-Jewish human author in the Bible. So he knew what it was like to be an, to an, out, to be an outsider, to come into this from the outside. Uh, Luke was also a doctor, so he was all about precision. And so he, he researched thoroughly the events of Jesus' life, death and resurrection, as well as the early church, the emergence of the early church. And he wrote a two-volume work on this. We know it as the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts, or the Acts of the Apostles. And he dedicated both of these works to a man named Theophilus, who some suggest was maybe an influential Roman, who Luke was trying to persuade to have a more favorable view of the Christian movement. Now Luke says that he, in his former book, the Gospel of Luke, he wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. Which means that Acts is what? It's a story of what Jesus continues to do and to teach. And if you really think about it, this is where my whole sermon series title just falls apart. It lasted two minutes, not a bad run. The origin story of the church in the end is not the book of Acts. The origin story of the church really goes back to the creation of the world. It's Genesis. It's God's plan for redemption in motion. But more immediately, the, the origin story of the church is Jesus. It's just what Jesus began to do and to teach in his life is what he continued to do and to teach through the church. 
Luke says that Jesus gave instructions through the Holy Spirit. And and Luke makes a big point of this, that Jesus in his earthly life was anointed and empowered by the Holy Spirit. Well, guess who's anointed and empowered by the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts? The church. So it's, 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 again, it's like we... We simply continue on what Jesus has already started. He's the origin. He's the source. He's everything that we're about. I don't know if I've ever said that before, but it's kind of about Jesus here at the Bridge Church. So that, that's, that's, that's kind of Luke's, Luke's background. Let's, let's keep going. Verses 3 to 11. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then then they gathered around him and they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel. He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And by the way, that's almost like a table of contents for the book of Acts. That's how the the movement goes. After he said this, He was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. I want to start with this last event here. Because I think it is the most underrated and most under-talked about element and event in the life of Jesus, right? We talk a lot about his death. We talk a lot about his resurrection. We talk a lot about his birth. I mean, two chapters of the Bible, we spend at least a month a year. Kelly Clarkson just released a Christmas single in September. It's ridiculous. Don't even get me started on that. We talk a lot about the miracles of Jesus, walking on water, feeding the 5,000. We talk a lot about that time he said, do not judge. And some people, a lot of people think that's the only thing Jesus ever said in the history of the world. But we don't really talk about, and he did say it, and it is important. But we don't really talk about the ascension of Jesus. And maybe it's because we really don't know what's going on here. Or what to do about this, right? Like, where did Jesus go? Was he like a rocket ship? Did he like just ascend through the stratosphere? Did, did, where, where, did he go up to a planet somewhere? Like is that where heaven is? If, if we explored space long enough, would we eventually stumble upon wherever the ascended Jesus went? Like what is going on? And even if we could figure that out, we wouldn't know. What, what, is this, what does this mean? Like why is this important? So let's talk, with the, let's talk about the first question first. What is actually going on in the ascension? And a few points from this, from this text, actually. So, so the first is that the issue about where does Jesus go is not just an ascension issue, it's a resurrected body of Jesus issue. 
So uh, Luke says that Jesus appeared to the disciples over a period of 40 days in a number of ways. And in a couple of examples, uh, one time after Jesus' resurrection, he was walking along the road with a couple of disciples. They didn't know who he was. They didn't recognize him. But he was walking with them, spent the whole day with them. And then at the end of the day, they realized, oh, it's Jesus. And what did Jesus do? Disappeared just like that. He was gone. Where'd he go? In another story, the disciples are all behind locked doors, all all huddled because they're afraid of the Jewish leaders because they just crucified Jesus. And all of a sudden, boom, there's Jesus. He just appears among them. Where'd he come from? The point is, is this question of where does the resurrected Jesus go and come from is not just an ascension thing. It's just his resurrected body thing. So that's one piece. Here's the second thing. We read that, that Jesus is taken up from them and hidden in a cloud. I'm not questioning that this was an actual cloud, but, but clouds carry a particular significance at important parts of the Bible. For example, uh, in, in the Gospel of Luke, the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus is on top of this mountain, hanging out with the disciples. All of a sudden, they're enveloped by a cloud. And the voice of God the Father speaks to them through this cloud. And Jesus is transfigured. He becomes all shiny. And, and the cloud represents or, or is the glory and the presence of God the Father. Uh, Moses, when he goes up on top of Mount Sinai and receives the Ten Commandments, you know, those two little stone tablets, uh, he is hidden by a cloud on top of Sinai, and it's very clearly the glory and presence of God. In the wilderness, the Israelites are led by a cloud representing God's presence, and then when they build the tabernacle, this moving worship center, the, cl- the, the cloud, God's glory, fills the tabernacle. So, so the language here means that not just that Jesus just goes really high so that we can't see him because he's, he's caught in the clouds, but, but that he is taken up into the glory and the presence of God the Father. A biblical way of saying that is that he sits at the right hand of the throne of, of God. That's what that language means. Which gets to this, this question about what is heaven? And where is heaven? Now, some of you have heard me talk about this before. Heaven is not our final destiny as believers. In the end, heaven and earth come together, a new, a new heaven and a new earth. That's the, the picture of Revelation. So what we he- read about heaven here is something different than that. And it's not, it's not a, a physical place somewhere else in the universe. It's not like another planet. And it's actually not just a a purely spiritual, non-physical place either. See, here's one of the misperceptions about the ascension, I think, which is that Jesus is resurrected in a body, and then he ascends and maybe on the trip kind of gets rid of his body, right? Discards it, goes back to being like a spirit or something. Uh, and, and then maybe when he comes again, maybe he, he takes on a body, but, but that's maybe how we, some, I don't know, maybe you're like, no, that's heresy, and I've always known that. But, but I think some people maybe think that way about it. But Jesus never stops being embodied in his resurrected body. The angels even say to, to the disciples, the same way he, he went, he's, he's going to come. He, he, he continues to be in his resurrected body. So where is and what is heaven then where jesus goes in this resurrected body well here is 
N.T. Wright's take. He's a New Testament scholar. I make this joke every time I, I, I quote him, but what a first name for, what a, what, a, what a first two initials for a New Testament scholar, right? N.T. Wright. He was born for it. He, he says, heaven and earth are two different dimensions of God's good creation. Two different dimensions. Heaven relates to earth tangentially so that the one who is in heaven can be present simultaneously anywhere and everywhere on earth. He says that heaven and earth somehow seem to operate with different kinds of space and matter and maybe even time. Um, not, this isn't like when C.S. Lewis wrote the Chronicles of Narnia and had, he had these worlds kind of intersecting and being related to each other. It's, it's maybe just like a glimpse of, of maybe what's What's going on here? Uh, so in the Bible, heaven is, is maybe this, this dimension of God's creation. It's, it's essentially the control room for the universe, but, but Jesus can seem to come and go all within his resurrected state. Now, there are physics here going on that is way above my pay grade, like way above. But the point, I think the, the bottom line, is that heaven is a control, the control room of the universe, a dimension of God's good creation. And when Jesus ascends to heaven, it means that he, in his resurrected state, has taken authority, that he has, he has been enthroned as king over heaven and earth. Does that make sense? Four people maybe are nodding their heads. Good, that's more than I expected. Let's keep going. Uh, so that, that's, that's maybe a little bit of what's going on. Jesus is taken into the glory and presence of God the Father, control room of the universe. He's, he's king. Now, what does this mean for us? I want to talk about three implications of, of the ascension. And, and by the way, this is so key. I really hope by the end of this, you're going to see that the ascension is key for everything else we're going to see in the book of Acts. It's actually, it's pretty incredible. So here's the first. Verses four and five, Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit. He, he says to his disciples, look, John, John the Baptist, he, he baptized with water. He, he immersed people in water. It was a symbol of washing, of repentance from sins. But Jesus says, ah, you're going to have something a lot more intense happen to you. You're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now, how do you get baptized, immersed in a spirit. Well, Jesus reminds them, I told you about this. I, I told you about the promise of the Father. And we would maybe say, well, when, Jesus? When did you say anything about that? I'd like to know. Hey, there's an answer, guys. You don't need to panic. It's in John. John 14 to 16 is one place where Jesus talks extensively about the Holy Spirit. Uh, Jesus is eating the Passover meal with his disciples. And they've spent three years together at this point. Three years with these odd, these oddball brothers and sisters, a new community. They've been given a new purpose, a new identity. Their lives have been turned upside down. They have seen and heard things that they never thought that they would see or hear. I mean, it has been a crazy ride for three years. And then Jesus tells them, tonight's the night I'm going to be betrayed. Tonight's the night I'm going to be taken from you. Uh, just imagine the sorrow and the heaviness in that room. You, you, were, you were having a party like you had so many times before, but suddenly you find out that it's a goodbye party. And so all of us, I think, have said goodbye in one way or another to people that we loved. Maybe it was a temporary goodbye. Uh, a friend was moving away, and we knew that it would never be the same, but we knew we might see them again. Other times, it was a, a permanent goodbye, or, or at least 
for life, and, and, and maybe you had some time to prepare at least. It wasn't sprung on you. For the disciples, it was that night, the one you love more than anyone else is going to be taken, is going to be killed uh, very soon. And, and I would just imagine that would have hit them like a ton of bricks. And so Jesus offers comfort to them, but, but warning, it's not going to sound very much like comfort. In John 16, verses 6 and 7, he says, You are filled with grief because I have said these things. But very truly I tell you, it's for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the Advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Jesus says, it's for your good that I go. If I stay, it's actually to your detriment. And I would think the disciples would say, I I hate to disagree with you, Jesus, but I think I'm going to on this one. What do you mean it's for our good? He says, this is actually better for you because this is the only way that the advocate can come. Now, Now, who is the advocate? It's pretty clear in, in John, this is one of the ways that Jesus speaks about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is an advocate. And the Holy Spirit comes alongside of us. He's, he's our comfort, our, our guide, our aid, our, our helper, our friend, an indwelling presence within us. That's who the Holy Spirit is. But why is it better? Why is it good for their good that they have the Holy Spirit instead of Jesus? Because let's be honest, if most of us had the choice... Wouldn't we choose to actually walk with Jesus in the flesh? To actually talk to him and hear him and be able to witness his spike ball skills? Right? Because I think he probably would have been pretty good at that. I, I would want him on my team. Wouldn't we want that? So why is it better? A few possibilities. I'll give you a few suggestions. One is the pragmatic reason. Jesus knew that this thing was about to seriously take off now that he had been resurrected. I mean, 10 days after this, the movement grows from 120 people to 3,000 in a single day. And and just at a certain point, if, if this whole thing depends on Jesus embodied being everywhere and anywhere, despite the N.T. Wright quote before, it's, it's probably just not going to work that well. I, I mean, this is maybe a terrible analogy, but we just came through an election that we as Canadians really wanted. We really were excited about it. And uh, it was dramatic changes across the board, of course. But anyways, we had this election, and, and across, like across Canada, we chose a government that generally most Canadians believe this would, or, you know, with our crazy system, some can, anyways, you know, it's a, a government that's supposed to care for our best interests. And, and, and yet, despite of that, we don't think that every time we have a dispute with a neighbor that the prime minister is going to show up at our house to help resolve it, right? We understand that's not the way government works. It can't just depend on one person being in everywhere and, and, and anywhere. And, and so maybe there's a bit of that, that the Holy Spirit is, is able to, uh, to, to dwell within, within all believers in a way that the embodied Jesus doesn't. There might be something to that. The second thing is, is maybe more of a transformational reason. I don't know. Try, try this out. See, think about the disciples. For three years, they're walking with Jesus. And even by the end of it, they're, they're kind of, like, they're kind of dummies, right? It's the second time I've used that word. This is why we don't have the kids in the service. They don't have to hear language like that. Uh, 
but they're, they're kind of, they still don't get it. They're, they're hard-headed and hard-hearted in, in some ways, right? After three years of walking with Jesus, and, and they've been changed for sure, and, and, and they've, they've been given some authority to, to minister on Jesus' behalf. But, but when, when the Holy Spirit is poured out on them at Pentecost, that's when things really ramp up. Right? That's when their, their hearts seem to be really changed, when, when Peter suddenly becomes this, this leader that he just wasn't before. You know, like something happens when the Holy Spirit is given from Jesus to dwell within them. Because within, I, I would say, is stronger than without. Inside is deeper than outside, maybe. I don't know. I, I think, that, I think that's, that's true. Uh, and so there's this transformation that takes place through the indwelling of the Spirit. But I, I think most importantly, and, and most clearly from the text itself, it's for their good because of, of theological reasons, because of who the Holy Spirit is. I talked before about the Holy Spirit being an, an aid, a guide, a comfort, a help. Uh, Jesus in, in John 16 will go on to say that the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin from within, teaches the world about righteousness and about judgment, leads people into the truth about who God is. The Spirit works in our hearts, shows us the truth. And then in John 16, verse 14, I think it is, uh, Jesus says that the Holy Spirit is all about glorifying Jesus. That's what the Holy Spirit is all about, glorifying Jesus, giving, giving Jesus glory, making his name great, you know, drawing people to worship, that kind of thing. Now here's the thing. The Holy Spirit can only glorify Jesus when Jesus is fully and truly glorified, which is what happens at the ascension that Jesus takes his place at the right hand of the throne of God. He's glorified. Now the Spirit can really do what the Spirit wants to do. Does that, does that, does that make sense at all? That the Spirit, the Spirit wants to glorify Jesus? And so for all of these reasons and more, it was for the good of the disciples that Jesus go so that Jesus could send and baptize them with the Jesus-glorifying Holy Spirit. Now, I know, and some of you hear this talk about spirit baptism and, and, and spirit filling, and you're breaking out in cold sweats right now. You're like, I, 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 don't, I don't really like this very much, because you, you've seen abuses. You, have, you know of people who claim to be spirit-filled and spirit-baptized, and they weren't a whole lot of fun to be around. And you've seen churches or heard of churches that went off the rails because of a certain stream of Holy Spirit talk. And so you go, well, I like Jesus, but I really don't know about this whole Holy Spirit thing. I want to encourage you today to, to, to think about how Jesus himself left so that you could have the Holy Spirit. He went to pretty great lengths to give you this gift. The Father wants to give you this gift. And, and remember, if the Spirit's all about glorifying Jesus and you like Jesus, then you're actually going to really like the Holy Spirit. Because that's what he's about. If this is the gift that the Father wants to give us, then for us to say, I don't really like it, I'm kind of uncomfortable with it, is, is maybe a little bit like this. Let's show that, that illustration. 
The, the point is that, that if we look at the words that Jesus himself spoke, we, we have to see there's a pretty big difference between these kingdoms. Jesus, before Pilate at his trial, said to him, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. Jesus saying, my kingdom is not is not of this world. It might be in the world. It might be manifested in the world, but it's not of it. Now, how, how do we understand the relationship between the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of this world? No analogy is perfect, but one of the best I've heard is, is from, uh, from C.S. Lewis. Uh, he wrote during the years of World War II, so that, that's going to factor in here a little bit, but he said that the world is essentially enemy-occupied territory. Think about uh, France during World War II and how Nazi Germany occupied France for those years. It's, it's not, it's not, it doesn't belong to them, but they're occupying it. They're ruling illegitimately. And, uh, and Lewis said that's what ha- what's happened uh, in, in the world, that the world is, is rightfully God's. God is, is the rightful king, but there has been an invasion and a rebellion that we would say has begun by, was begun by Satan and has been joined in by many, many human beings. So there's this rebellion. And what Christmas is, there, man, I'm talking about Christmas in September. I'm guilty of it too. Uh, Christmas, C.S. Lewis said, is essentially the rightful king is landing in his territory, but subtly like in disguise, right? As a baby born in Bethlehem, the, the, the rightful king has arrived back on the scene. And what the ascension is, I, I would say, is the rightful king has now set up his throne in the midst of enemy-occupied territory. And that explains why, even though we say that Jesus is the king, and he says this even in, in the book of Matthew at the end. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So he's the king over all. But it explains why, even though he's the king, it seems like there's still a pretty widespread rebellion, right? Like it seems like there's still a lot of people who don't recognize it and don't live that way. And, and that's because he set up his throne, but many people simply are not going to bow the knee. You know, Jesus talks about how the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. I've mentioned this, that, that grows and emerges slowly, or how the kingdom of God is like a little bit of yeast that works through a whole batch of dough. It's, it's, it's in, but it's not of. It's, it's here, and, and, and it's already, and yet at the same time, it's, it's not yet. It's this kind of like mixed reality where he's the king, but there's this rebellion. So the question is, why doesn't the king squash the rebellion? Why doesn't he go out and destroy those enemy forces? C.S. Lewis said it's, it's, it's because the king wants as many people as possible to freely and willingly choose to follow him, to live under his reign. Because in his context, he said, nobody would think much of a Frenchman who waited until the Nazis were completely and totally defeated before saying, oh yeah, no, no, I'm loyal to the French, I'm loyal to the French. But the whole time before that was, was, was totally in with the Nazis, just to wait until there's no other option. He used the war analogy. I'll use a sports analogy because, you know, it's me. Um, I, I have been a diehard Toronto Raptors fan since, since they became a team in 1995. I remember 
uh, watching a preseason game between the Vancouver Grizzlies and the Toronto Raptors, these two new Canadian teams. And, and, and you'll have to forgive me, but as a Manitoba boy, Ontario was closer, so I chose the Raptors. Um, but kind of a good choice in the end, right? I mean, let's be honest, too soon? Too soon? They've been gone for a while. Um, so I was, I was diehard from the start, and I, I watched them, I followed them, even when they were terrible. They were awful. They were the laughing stock of the league. A lot of players didn't want to even play for them. I remember Chris Bosch going, oh, I couldn't even watch ESPN in Canada. That's why I played for the Heat or something like that. It's just like, what? So it was, it was terrible being a Raptors fan, but I stuck with them. Every time I had this hope, I was like, maybe Sonny Weems is the next Michael Jordan. You know, you just hope. Just hope. Anybody get that one? No? Sonny Weems? No, okay. Um, I, I had this hope, but, but it, was, it never came to fruition. Then the Raptors in the last decade started to be respectable, started making the playoffs, winning games. A few more people became fans. And then 2019 happened. And all of a sudden, for two months, every hockey-loving Canadian and their dogs were Raptor fans. Everybody's wearing We the North shirts and everything because the Raptors won the championship. But let me tell you something. Being a fan for 25 years and sticking through thick and thin when they were awful made that a very, very different experience than somebody who just in the last month learned Kawhi Leonard's name. Let me show you an example of what it looked like to be a fan at that, at that, at that point. That's for sure. Come on, Kawhi. Come on, Kawhi. Go. Come on, Kawhi. Make it. Come on, baby. Do your crazy chocolate peanuts. I will. I will. I will. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 So that's the thing about being a pastor. My whole life is on display, guys. So there's a big difference between being a true fan and being a bandwagon jumper, right? And, and God wants, he wants true fans. He wants people who are willing to bow the knee to him and surrender to him, even while the enemies run rampant around and seem to run things. He wants, he wants people who say no. In the midst of all of that, I'm putting my faith in you. So that I think explains that the nature of, of the kingdom, that, that Jesus in his ascension really is king over heaven and earth. But until he comes again, it's still this, this, this rebellion is still a reality and we're called to put our trust in the king even in the midst of this ongoing battle. Now, where, where does that leave us in terms of our calling in this messy, in-between kind of stage of, of salvation history? That gets at the third and final implication of the ascension. The church is essentially the group of people who have, who have bowed the knee, who are pledging allegiance to the rightful king, who are living by his ways and following his words, even when a lot of the people in the world aren't. That's what the church is. And, and the call of the church then is in its words and its deeds to bear witness to the fact 
that Jesus is the rightful king. They are to be witnesses. This is what we talked about last week. This is what Jesus says to the disciples here in in Acts. He says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. You are my witnesses. The church is is basically a group of subversive counter-agents who are going around telling people, like whispering almost, hey, just so you know, the king is actually here. You don't have to live that way anymore. You don't have to follow those tyrants anymore. The rightful king is here and and you can meet him. You can know him. You can live under his gracious rule and his reign. But you know, I know as soon as I... As soon as I talk about witness, some of you break into cold sweats about the Holy Spirit. Some of you break into cold sweats about witness too. Because just like with the Holy Spirit, you've seen it done really, really poorly, right? You've seen it done through coercion and manipulation. In fact, here in Canada, we have this giant stain on our consciences that is the the residential school system where a bunch of Christians tried to impose Christian faith from the top down, tried to to use force and manipulation to make this happen. And and so a lot of people go, I don't want to have anything to do with that, which is pretty understandable. But here's the key. Going back to N.T. Wright, our friend from like 30 minutes ago, he says the method of the kingdom has to match the message of the kingdom. And what's the message of the kingdom? The message of the kingdom is that Jesus loved us so much that he gave his life for us and that he faithfully endured suffering to the very end without giving into temptation, without sinning, and that that he has been raised to life in power. That's the message of the kingdom. And so the method of the witnesses of the kingdom has to match that. Which means... That you're you're not going to use force and manipulation and coercion. Instead, it's like Paul says in 2 Corinthians, he says, we always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. We carry around the the death of Jesus. The method of the kingdom, the, the method of witnessing is supposed to be, is supposed to look like Jesus. We're willing to lay down our luxuries, our comforts, our privileges, even our lives for the sake of Jesus. And we're supposed to do it by bearing the fruit of the Spirit who indwells us. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. We do it by, by always being ready to give an answer when people ask us why we have this hope, and even then we do it by gentleness and respect, is what Peter says. We do it by continuing to do and to teach Jesus things, by healing, by speaking about his grace, by making the invitation, but, but never using force, never, never using political and legal means to bring people into the kingdom. That's not the way this works. Jesus is king, but he invites people to bow the knee willingly and freely because of his love for them. This is what we see in the book of Acts. This is what we're going to see in the coming months. This is how the disciples of Jesus do it. This is our origin story. This is who we are. So let's go, right? Let's do this. Jesus has ascended. He's he's poured out his spirit. He is king over all. You know this now. The ascension is 
key. So let's live it out. In our words and our deeds, let's tell the world that a king loves them so much that he gave his life for them and and rules now in power forever. Amen. Music people, let's go. Let's do this. And let's pray. Jesus, we glorify you today because you are king. You ascended into heaven. You poured out your spirit and you rule and you reign over all things. We proclaim that that's true, Lord. And we bow the knee to you even when it's unpopular. Even when we're a a minority, Lord, we trust and we believe that you really are king and that you are coming again. Lord, that that promise will come true. You will come again, and you will make all things new. So we thank you, and we praise you, and we ask, Lord, fill us with your Holy Spirit that we would be your witnesses in this world. In Jesus' name, amen.